Revelation chapter 1 and verses 9 to 11. We started some weeks ago, I think this is our third week, in the book of Revelation, and we arrive this week to verses 9 to 11 of the first chapter. Now keep in mind, if we're going to rightly understand the book of Revelation, we have to keep a few things in mind. We have to, first of all, keep in mind its primary purpose, and that is to encourage persecuted Christians. Its central theme, Christ as king of the world. And its immediate audience is the seven churches. And these seven churches, as we'll see, are representative of all churches of every age. We come then to verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book, and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Well, we find that John here identifies himself more particularly, and I want to suggest a couple of things about it. We find first in verse 9a his identity. And then secondly, we find in verse 9b, his location. And then we'll spend probably the bulk of our time, or at least the majority of it, in verse 10 and 11, where we'll see his activity. So we find, first of all, who is the writer. That is the identity of John. We find out where he wrote from, Patmos. That's his location. And what was he doing uh, on the island of Patmos? Patmos, and that's his activity. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Notice first then, verse 9a, his identity. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. John makes very clear that he was both their brother and companion. He identifies himself with the seven churches that he's now to write letters to. In other words, although John was likely the last living apostle at this time, he doesn't identify himself as an apostle, but as a brother and companion with the seven churches in three things, tribulation, kingdom, and patience. In other words, John here is identifying with the churches he's writing to. We're in it together, in essence, is what John is saying. Barnes said the general idea is that alike in privileges and sufferings, they were united. They, they were united, that is, John and the seven churches, both in privileges and sufferings. And we're going to see both of those are represented in the three things they shared. But he goes on to say they shared alike in the results of their attachment to the Savior. They shared alike in the results 
of their attachment to the Savior. He was their fellow brother and companion in three things, tribulation, kingdom, and patience. Now, the prepositional phrase of Jesus Christ at the end of patience probably is best attributed to all three. It's the tribulation of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and patience of Jesus Christ. And let us go through them quickly in turn. First, tribulation. That is, it was tribulation faced because of Jesus Christ. It wasn't the tribulation that was brought upon them by Jesus. It was the tribulation they endured for the sake of Jesus. In other words, John, as well as the seven churches, was suffering hardship because of his allegiance to Christ. And thus we find at the outset that John, as well as the seven churches, were tribulation saints. Every Christian is a tribulation saint. Every Christian must enter the kingdom of God through much or great tribulation. There are not some tribulation saints and then others who are not. Now, there are some who have to endure more tribulation, like the Christians in China at present. They're enduring more tribulations. And those Christians in the first century, the primary audience to John, were enduring more, were enduring more tribulation than we are. But nevertheless, we're all in the tribulation of Jesus Christ, brother. We're all in this world enduring tribulation for the sake of Jesus Christ. And then secondly, there's the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Though he was suffering and enduring mistreatment, though he was in the tribulation, the tribulation isn't something that we're waiting for, he was in the tribulation, he was also and simultaneously in the kingdom. He was a citizen of two realms. He was in this world, he was a citizen of the world. And thus he was the object of ridicule and hatred. And at the very same time, he was a citizen of the kingdom of Christ. And thus he was an heir of eternal life. He was royalty in one sense, and he was despised and hated in another sense. Brethren, we all live in two cities at the same time. We are all Citizens of this world, and thus we are tribulation saints, and at the same time we're citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and thus we're heir of eternal, heirs of eternal life. The kingdom of Jesus Christ. Only Christians are part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now that doesn't negate, that doesn't deny that in some sense, Christ is king over the kingdoms of this world. Remember, we refer to that as his kingdom of power. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Christ sits as sovereign over the kingdoms of the world. He's the king of kings. And yet there's a peculiar kingdom that we call his kingdom of grace. And only those who've been made willing in the day of his power are citizens of that kingdom. And they don't cease being citizens of this world. 
Though they're no longer citizens of the kingdom of darkness, but nevertheless they live in the kingdom of this world, and they're hated and they're despised, all the while being citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, there's the patience of Jesus Christ. John was not only a companion with the seven churches in suffering and in reigning, in suffering and in the kingdom, in tribulation and the kingdom, but also in the patience of Jesus Christ. Now, the word translated patience means fundamentally endurance, perhaps even perseverance. We could render it either way, patience, endurance, or perseverance. It's the endurance of Jesus Christ. It's the perseverance of Jesus Christ. And it can mean one of two things, and I suggest probably both. It can mean the patience, endurance, or perseverance that Jesus himself illustrated in his life. He endured through the tribulation of this world. Okay, so we're all citizens of the kingdom of grace as Christians. And we're going to enter into the kingdom of glory that's heaven. And remember, Paul said in Acts 14 that we all must enter the kingdom of glory through tribulation. So while we're already in the kingdom of grace, we're awaiting that kingdom to come. And that's what we pray for. Thy kingdom come. And Jesus himself entered into glory through tribulation. And so it's possible that when John says, speaks here of the patience of Jesus Christ, he's talking about that patience or that endurance or that perseverance that Jesus himself illustrated. But it's more likely that he's talking about the endurance or the patience or the perseverance that all Christians have as they endure through the tribulation of this world. And they're tied because we imitate his patience or perseverance. And secondly, we trust his patience or his endurance. That is, we endure because he endured. We persevere because he persevered. Christ endured the wicked mistreatment of men. He endured through this tribulation. And we imitate him, but we also trust him. We follow him. Christians follow the lamb through the tribulation of this world into the next. We must follow his patience, but we also must trust his patience and be assured that we will endure because he endured first. Since the head has gotten through, brethren, perhaps I can put it this way, the body is sure to follow. Because the head got through, the body will follow. All right? Now that's his identity. So he wants at first to, to underscore the fact that he's a brother and a companion with them in tribulation in the kingdom and in the patience or the endurance. John had to endure. John had to persevere just like the seven churches. That's his identity. Secondly, notice his location. Verse 9b, I was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God 
and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you know that Patmos was a small island in the Aegean Sea, about 50 or so miles from the coast of Asia. And so these churches that John is writing to, they're approximately 50 or so miles from him as he's writing to them. And he's exiled to this lonely, desert-like island because, John says, of the word of God and testimony of Jesus Christ. In other words, he was exiled as punishment. We don't know how many other Christians, or if there were other Christians with him, exiled on the island of Patmos. It's very likely there were. We don't know that, but we do know he was there, and he says he was there as a punishment. They sent him there, they exiled him there to this island, and tradition has it that there he would spend his last days. Barnes put it like this. No place could have been selected for banishment which would accord better better with such a design than this. In other words, there was no better place to banish him, to punish him, being that the island was a lonely, um, empty place. He goes on to say, lonely, desolate, barren, uninhabited, seldom visited. It had all the essentials which could be desired for a place of punishment. It was a perfect place to banish somebody to punish them. So John was far from um, having a vocation on the island of Patmos. He was there suffering. He was there suffering for two closely related reasons, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. That is, he bore witness to Christ as revealed in the word. Why did they hate him? Why did they banish him? Here's why. They hated the word. And brethren, surely we know that this country is fast becoming a place that is no longer tolerant for the word. I just saw in the news here somewhat recently a preacher was booted from his church. Because he put on the sign outside that sodomy is still a sin, men are still women, and marriage is still forever, or something like that. And his own churchmen booted him out. Well, the world, the world here is booted John out. The world doesn't want the word. Well, in this case, the church, supposed, professed church didn't want the word. The church booted out the preacher for standing on the word. No, brethren, we have to stand on the word. We have to be humble. We have to be clear. We have to be balanced. We have to be precise. We have to be patient. But we have to be, nevertheless, firm and unashamed. And if we stand on the word and we stand on the testimony of Jesus Christ, we will be in some measure or another mistreated. And John was banished for no other reason but because he bore witness to the Christ as made known in Holy Scripture. Now that brings us then thirdly to his activity. What was John doing there on the island of Patmos? And this is really a a beautiful twist in the account. 
while he was lonely, while he was exiled, while he was suffering, while he was enduring tribulation, wonderful things are about to happen. Brethren, we learn that oftentimes God meets with his people while in the most difficult of circumstances. Perhaps we can put it like this. The world can banish the body, but cannot enslave the soul. And didn't Jesus say something like that? Fear not, the, fear not man who can kill the body, but God who can kill both body and soul. All man can do is kill the body. All man can do is banish, banish us to a lonely island that John, by the Spirit, turns into a sanctuary. A revival for one. John is having, assumedly by himself, on the island of Patmos. Again, we don't know. It's possible there was a little band of exiled Christians. He huddled them, get, huddled them together on the first day of the week and they held their own little corporate uh, meeting. But it seems like the Holy Spirit is intentionally dealing directly and individually with one man on the island, namely John. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Now, brethren, from the very beginning, almost every Christian has understood the phrase, the Lord's day, as a reference to the first day of the week. It just surprises me to no end that there are people still today who attempt to somehow or another discredit that assertion. No, Christians from the beginning have understood that the Lord's Day here in Revelation 1.10 is a reference to the first day of the week, what we call Sunday. For example, Ignatius said this at about 100 A.D. So if we, if we ascribe to John's revelation, the later date, this is just a decade or less away from when John wrote the book. He described the Lord's Day as this. It's the queen and prince of all the days. Justin Martyr, who lived about two decades later, wrote this about 125 A.D. On the Lord's Day, called Sunday by the Greeks, the Christians met together in one place and read the scriptures and prayed together and administered the ordinance of the supper. Brethren, that's just a simple, clear description or definition of new covenant worship. We gather on the first day of the week, we pray, we read the Bible, we hear preaching and teaching, and we partake of the sacraments. The Didache, which is about probably two decades Further on, about 150 A.D., which is a collection of early church writings, says this, uh, in this in the chapter on the Lord's Day. This is about 150 A.D. But every Lord's Day, gather yourselves together and break bread, that is, partake of the supper, and give thanksgiving after you confess your sins that your worship may be pure. Brethren, it's evident that the early church has always recognized the phrase the Lord's Day as a reference to the first day of the week. Let me just give you one last sample. 
Chrysostom. This is probably another 100 years after that, or 150 years after that, into the 300s. He said, it was called the Lord's Day. He's now going to give us a little bit of a, a rationale why the first day of the week is called the Lord's Day. He said, it was called the Lord's Day because the Lord rose from the dead on that day. Brethren, it's, it, that's, that's the, the best reason I think there is. Why does John here refer to the first day of the week, what the Greeks called Sunday, as we typically do as well? Why does he refer to it as the Lord's Day? Because it was on that day Jesus was declared publicly Lord by his resurrection. That's what Paul said to the Romans, remember? Romans 1.4, he was declared to be the Son of God with authority by the resurrection from the dead. So Jesus was declared publicly to be Lord by or through his resurrection. And thus it was that first day, the day he rose from the dead, that the early church, here starting with John, under divine inspiration, refers to the first day of the week as the Lord's Day. Now the Greek construction of the phrase, the Lord's Day, is found in only one other place in the New Testament, and that's 1 Corinthians 11.20. And it's a reference to what? The Lord's Supper. You see, the Lord's Day and the Lord's Supper, those phrases underscore unique possession. This day uniquely belongs to the Lord. This supper uniquely belongs to the, to the Lord. Brethren, all days, every day isn't the Lord's Day. No more than every supper is the Lord's Supper. Now, I was just telling somebody that I make a very mean uh, chicken tender. And uh, that's what we had for lunch. And we have some left over, and I can't wait to get home and reheat them in the oven. Or let me put it this way. On my birthday, which was yesterday, we always go to the same Chinese Buffet, you go from 2 to 3.30 and it's only $5.99, all you can eat. And it was a nice meal as usual. It was a wonderful supper. But brethren, it wasn't the Lord's Supper. And I had a wonderful day. But it wasn't the Lord's Day. If every day is a Lord's Day, no day is a Lord's Day. If every supper is the Lord's Supper, no supper is the Lord's Supper. Brother, I mean, language means something, doesn't it? The Lord's Day. That means there's a day in the New Covenant that uniquely belongs to the Lord. The next question, what day is that? Well, again, from the beginning, the Christian church has always recognized that it's the first day of the week, the day in which Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. But what was John doing on the Lord's day? <clears throat> he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, here comes a more difficult question, perhaps. What does John mean by being in the spirit? 
Well, I want to suggest that to be in the Spirit refers to being controlled by the Spirit or under the divine influence of the Spirit. Now, obviously, with regards to John, he was uniquely in the Spirit so as to receive special visions. In fact, I think there's three more occasions in Revelation where he says he's in the Spirit. Let me just show you them very quickly. Look at chapter 4, 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So in all of the occasions, ours, first um, Revelation 1.10, and then the other three, the, all four of them, when John's in the Spirit, he's seeing something by way of vision. The Holy Spirit is communicating to him truth about God and about Christ. The, that, so this is the second use in, in chapter 4-2. The third one is a little further away in chapter 17, verse 3. So he carried me away in the Spirit into the wilderness, and I saw. And he's going to get this tremendous vision about a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names and blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. That's the third. The fourth and final is in chapter 21, verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, that is the church, which came down from heaven perfected. According to verse 9, that's the bride, the lamb's wife. So the phrase generically means to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And in John's case, it uniquely meant that he was privileged to receive special visions from God. And those, of course, are what he's writing down. And as we see back in chapter 1, in particular, it has reference, as we'll see next week, to a tremendous description of Christ. In other words, Christ reveals himself by the Spirit to his privileged prophet. But we'll see other texts in the New Testament wherein the phrase is used in the Spirit to mean to refer to influence of the Spirit in a lesser degree than John. So it doesn't always have to refer to special visions received from God as a prophet. It can mean, as we'll see in a minute, simply to new covenant worship by the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's not wrong even at times, as we'll see, to translate the word in, by, in the Holy Spirit, or by the Holy Spirit. So John was here in the Holy Spirit. That means to say he was worshiping by the Holy Spirit, who was showing to him divine truth. And so from this, brethren, I want to suggest to you in closing three things. First of all, public worship takes place on the Lord's day. That is, there is one day in seven 
within the new covenant, which is to be kept holy, that is, separate from or other than the rest. In other words, there is a New Testament Sabbath day. Brother, the very terminology Lord's Day is borrowed from Isaiah 58, 13. Where God says, if you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, on my day, on my day, that is the Lord's day, and call the Sabbath a delight. Now, if you go to Isaiah 58, it's a prophecy of the New Testament. He's foretelling a day in the New Covenant where there will be a holy day wherein Christians are to keep as a Sabbath. Perhaps this is just another way of saying there's ten commandments in the ten commandments and not nine. But brother, we have to keep in mind even though the first day of the week is the Lord's day, which by inference means it's not our day. It's the Lord's day. But nevertheless, the scriptures teach us that it's to be viewed and to be experienced as a divine blessing and gift from God. It's a gift from God, the Lord's Day, or the weekly Sabbath. It's a gift from God to man, whereby man is enabled to rest from his vocational labors And to worship God formally. Brethren, I've never understood it. And I never will. Why so many Christians fight against God's good gifts. When we were younger, or when the kids were younger, we always took Monday off. And Monday was always family day. It was, back then it was just the four girls and me and mom, me and Ange. And so it was basically what the girls called Daddy-Daughter Day. It was Daddy-Daughter Day. And uh, every day they had me at home and they would see me and we would spend time together. But on the other days, no, sweetie, Daddy can't play with you today. I have to go to work. You have to go to school. But on Mondays... There was no school and there was no work. It was all theirs. Or perhaps I can say I was all theirs. Well, brethren, that's exactly what the Lord's Day is. We get God every day. We get to walk with him every day. But we get him all day on Sunday. Sunday is daddy-daughter day. Listen to how Jesus put it like this. Look at the end of Mark 2. Mark 2, verse 27. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Now when Jesus says that the Sabbath was made for man, he means Adam. There was a Sabbath, a weekly Sabbath, that predated the covenant with Israel. There was a Sabbath embedded in the very fabric of creation. 
It was made for Adam, not for the nation, by the way. It doesn't say the Sabbath was made for Israel. It says Sabbath was made for man. That is Adam. But notice what he says, and not man for the Sabbath. Now, why does he say that? Because if you go, go back and read the previous verses, you'll find that the religious leadership, the Pharisees, had distorted the Sabbath. And they filled it up with a bunch of man-made restrictions. And what Jesus is saying is, from the beginning, you've missed it, because from the beginning, the Sabbath was given to man as a blessing. It was given to man as a blessing. It was given to man even in a fault, even in a sinless, perfect world. Brethren, if Adam had a weekly Sabbath in paradise, how much more do we need it in this fallen world, in this tribulation? The Sabbath was made for man. It was made to be a blessing to man. And man wasn't made for it. In other words, the Pharisees had flipped it on its head. And so when Jesus came out of the tomb, he brought with him a weekly Sabbath, washed and rinsed from all, not only of the Pharisaical perversions, but also all of the Old Covenant restrictions. As he does with every other law. He brings the purity of that moral decalogue that was in Adam's heart, in perfection, in paradise, and in shadow even after he fell. He brings it with him up from the grave, brethren. When he comes out of the grave, he brings with him the purity of that decalogue. And then he writes it in our hearts as New Covenant Christians. Stripped of, stripped of its perversions and distortions, but also he fulfills all of the Old Covenant legal aspects of it as he does with every other commandment. And that's why the civil and judicial aspects of all the commandments don't continue into the, into the New Covenant one for one. They only come with a abiding equity. Jesus fulfilled all of that. And now he writes it upon the hearts of every New Covenant believer. And the very essence of it is very simply. Cease from vocational labors and worship God. That's what he puts in our hearts, brethren. And John, here he is, all lonely and exiled, and yet, as a Christian man, he sets apart this first day of the week in commemoration to his Savior's resurrection. Public worship, secondly, is in spirit and truth. John 4.24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now most, I think all of our translations here, capitalize the first spirit. God is spirit. And then they do not capitalize the latter one, and I think rightly. 
Because God is spirit, we must worship him with our spirits and in truth as he's revealed. But surely, brethren, if we're to worship with our spirits, that necessitates we worship by the influence of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps I can put it like this. New covenant worship at its very core is worship with spirits in truth by the Spirit. In fact, that's exactly what we have. If you look back, for example, to Philippians 3 and verse 3, where we have a description of New Covenant Christians and their worship. For we are the circumcision. That is, we are the truly circumcised. We are those who've had our hearts changed. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. And I think all of your translations have spirit capitalized. If not, you should just pencil over it. Because it's talking about the Holy Spirit. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, and we rejoice in Christ Jesus, and we have no confidence in the flesh. Brother, this is a tremendous threefold description of, of every true Christian. Well, perhaps we could say there's a four Full description. We're the true circumcision. We worship in the Spirit. We rejoice in Christ. That term rejoice, you know, means to boast. It really means that our confidence is in Him. And then there's the fourth, because our confidence or our boasting is in Christ, we have no confidence in the flesh. That is, we no longer trust our works, our deeds, or our pedigrees. I don't trust the fact that I was raised in a Christian home. I don't trust the fact that I was raised in this country as an American. I don't trust the fact that I've done all these good things. I don't trust the fact that I was natively a Jew or a Gentile or rich or poor, black or white. Brother, it doesn't matter when it comes right down to it. Because a true circumcised person, a new covenant Christian, is one who has been circumcised in the heart who worships God now by the power of the Holy Spirit, who puts all of their faith and confidence and joy in Christ, and they put no confidence in the flesh. All new covenant worship, all true worship, old or new covenants, is always in and by the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God, brethren, enables us to perform every act of worship. Well, we could even widen that, couldn't we, and say he, he enables us to perform every good deed. Because remember, we live, we walk how? In the Spirit. Everything we do is by the Spirit, brother, and that certainly includes worship. And that's why we're set. Well, just back up. For, or if you're in Revelation 1, back up to Jude and verse 20. But you, beloved... Building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Everything we do is in the Holy Spirit. And again, we could perhaps translate that by the Holy Spirit. So when we come to worship, we sing in the Holy Spirit. 
We hear in the Holy Spirit. We preach in the Holy Spirit. We partake of the sacraments in the Holy Spirit. We fellowship in the Holy Spirit. Here we're to build ourselves up. How? By praying in the Holy Spirit. Brother, that phrase doesn't mean speaking in tongues. It means praying by the power of the Holy Spirit. So every aspect of worship is done in or by the Holy Spirit. And we learn that from John. Exiled on that lonely island, Patmos. Thirdly, and finally, public worship enjoys the special presence of Christ. It was while John was exiled on Patmos on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, while he was worshiping God. See, that seems to be the scenario here. It's the, John mentions it, the Lord's Day. He's likely worshiping God. And as he's worshiping God, the Holy Spirit comes in a profound way and reveals to him Christ. Look at it, how it's put there. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day and I heard behind me a loud voice as a trumpet. Now, if we were to take um, an hour or two, we could go through the whole Bible and find that the voice of God is often attached to the trump of God or the trumpet of God. Remember, Jesus is going to come back and there's going to be the loud voice and the trumpet of God. When uh, the law was given at Sinai, there were trumpets. Every... 50th year, Jubilee, there were trump, I mean, trumpets and the voice and the blessing of God go hand in hand throughout the Bible. In other words, here we find that Christ is speaking to him in a powerful, in a loud, and in a clear way. Brother, let me put it like this. We hear Christ the loudest when we gather on his day to worship him in his way. He speaks to us. Does he still speak to us? Of course he does. John heard the audible voice of Christ. We hear the audible voice of Christ in and through his word. And that's why, for example, at the end of the seven letters, as the seven letters are going to be written and sent to the seven churches, we have this repeating phrase, for example, in chapter 2, 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Brethren, it's present tense active. The Holy Spirit is, as that letter is read to the first church, Ephesus, the Holy Spirit is speaking in and through the letter. Shh, wait a minute, stop talking. As the preacher at Ephesus is reading the letter, I'm trying to hear what God is saying to me. God is speaking to me. Shh, let's listen. And brethren, in the public worship, when the word of God is read and preached, God is speaking to us. And that's why we have to be very careful to keep that in mind. We need to be present in our seats. And we need to be humbly dependent upon the Spirit. That he would make that word come to our ears like a trumpet. Oh, brethren, what a beautiful little prayer to pray every Lord's Day morning.
and evening or afternoon as you're sitting here waiting for the public worship to start. Oh, Lord, make your word powerful to my heart like a trumpet. And what does John hear? What does John receive but a beautiful description of Christ? Christ revealed himself to John through his word. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. I'm God, John. I'm the God-man. And you're presently exiled on Patmos. But I'm victorious because I'm in heaven. And I'm speaking to you from heaven by my spirit. And as you gather together on the Lord's days, weekly, week in, week out, I'll be uniquely present with you. By the way, we'll see this next week because the seven lampstands are what? The seven churches. And where is Jesus in relation to the seven lampstands? He's in their what? Midst. He's walking in the midst of his churches on the Sabbath. And what is he doing, brethren, as we're going to see? He's replenishing their oil and he's trimming their wicks. The imagery is that each church is like a lampstand. And those lampstands had to be replenished every day by the priests. And Jesus, as we're going to see next week, is described as a glorious priest walking in the midst of his seven churches, replenishing their oil and trimming their wicks, making sure the lamp doesn't go out. And he does that through his word by correcting them and disciplining them and encouraging them. Brother, this is what he's telling John. John, you're all alone. Yes, it looks bleak. It looks difficult. It looks dark. But I've, as the head of the church, I've endured, and since I've endured or persevered, then you too as my body of necessity, as he said to his disciples, will be where I am. You'll be where I am, brethren. That's the whole point, right? Why do we come to church? Why do we gather every single Lord's Day? But to worship God in the Spirit and to hear the voice of Christ. And to be encouraged that as my Savior has endured, so shall we. Perhaps I can put it like this. Just as Christ revealed himself to John on the Lord's day by the Spirit, so he reveals himself to his people as they gather together to worship him. And to hear from him. Well, brethren, I hope that encourages you and excites you not to grow weary in well-doing, but to make the first day of the week the best day. In the words of Ignatius, the queen and prince of all days, may we not grow weary in well-doing. Well, let us stand and close our time of devotion by singing a hymn, 309.